Well, today uh, I would like to talk to you about how to respond when somebody wrongs you. Uh, how do you respond when someone is trying to do you harm, physically or more commonly, spiritually? Very practical topic today. Uh, what do you do when somebody sins against you? Every one of us here this morning has been wronged by other people. All of us have. There is no exception. It would not be difficult for us to write a long list of the ways in which other people have sinned against us, would it? Now, of course, we have also wronged many, many other people, right? But today, this text is specifically dealing with the issue of how do you respond when somebody is coming after you, when someone wants to hurt you? The world, our world, has a lot of ideas about what to do. But what is a faithful Christian supposed to do when somebody wants to fight? When somebody wants to harm you? The answer to that is in our text for today in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. So if you, don't, uh, if you haven't already turned there, feel free to open your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12. What do you do when somebody wants to fight? Paul's answer to this question of what to do will probably surprise, I would imagine, some of you. I want to begin by just highlighting his conclusion. Paul says that if somebody wants to start a fight with you, if somebody wants to start a fight with you, here's the short form of his argument. Win that fight. Win the fight. It sounds odd, but jump down if you would to verse 21. Verse 21. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's more to say about that verse, but the word overcome, just as we start, that word overcome is the Greek word behind the athletic brand that we all know, Nike, Nikao. It's the word for victory. So he's saying to conquer evil when it comes after you. In a way, verse 21 is a summary of this entire section that we've been walking through. And so it sets our agenda for today. And that's why the first point we're going to talk about is seeking to overcome evil with good. Everything we're going to talk about this morning funnels into this, funnels into how to conquer evil in your own personal interactions with it. The reason I bring this up early on is because it is such a strange thought, isn't it? I mean, just one look at the news and you can see how much evil is out there. And yet there's this thing that happens, I'm sure you've experienced it. If you're not careful, you can just look at what's wrong and what's wrong and what's wrong and what's wrong. And the world's evil can become really, really big in your eyes. And if you're not careful, what can happen is that God's goodness can become really, really small. It can look really, really weak. It can look really tiny. But the Apostle John says... Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world, right? We're Christians. We believe that. It's very easy, however, to slip into a mindset of defeat, right? Have you ever looked around and felt like, you know, you watch the news or something and you look around and you just say like, what can anybody do? <laughs> right? Can anybody do anything right? What can be done about this? Like, should I just curl up on my couch and just wait for the rapture? You know, just like, just sit here and just survive, 
Like, we're just here to hide, kind of have a comfortable life, just avoid as much of this as possible, and just survive. Verse 21 answers that with, absolutely not. Paul doesn't think you should do that. Paul says, or Jesus says, we are salt and light in this world while we're here. In our dark world, we are light. We show the light of Christ in our jobs, in our families. And so at the ground level, right, not speaking geopolitically here, but at the ground level of a Christian's day-to-day interactions, you can have confidence in the power of God's goodness, especially when people wrong you. You can have confidence in the fact that God's goodness can overwhelm evil. As it relates to how you're doing in this area personally, uh, just to get you thinking, just some questions maybe to just diagnose your heart with this morning. Do you think that you are someone who's more optimistic or more pessimistic about unbelievers in your life? About what God can do in them? Maybe it's unbelieving family members. Like you can put your finger on somebody maybe who's, you know, you would say like that person's kind of a problem. Are you optimistic about what God can do in their life? Or are you more pessimistic? Are you more negative? Are you more doubtful? Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's neighbors. But just, just being honest, how confident are you that God can do amazing things in your life? Are you doubtful? As you look at somebody in your life, an unbeliever in particular, because Paul's talking about those who are unbelievers who are aggressive and hostile towards Christians here. As you look at somebody like that, are you doubtful that God can save somebody that you know? If that doubt is in your heart, I just want you to remember, just as we start, that the person who wrote verse 21 was once on the side of evil. He was an elite persecutor of the church. And one day, God just changed his heart like that. Right? It's a biblical fact that God's goodness wins. And good can prevail in any conflict that we face. And Paul commands every one of us in verse 21 to see to it that it does. We are to be on the side of good. We are to be confident in what God can do even through us by his grace. So I highlight this just to start us to reorient our whole approach to conflict. Uh, Our usual response is just, you know, when someone's being mean to you or someone's being hostile towards you, is just to say, like, stop, 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 like, please just, and then you try to avoid that person. You move away from that person, right? But Paul is saying, no, no, move toward that person. Move in. Move toward that person and gain victory. Overcome evil with good. The question for our text this morning is how? How do you do that? How exactly do you overcome evil with good? And for that, we look to verses 19 and 20. Here is where Paul trains you how to respond when somebody wrongs you. You can think of it like your own personal training session, right? And a lot of this is more for your mind. It's more shaping your heart. And while I hope this helps you with with past grievances, with dealing with all the things that have been done to us, uh, Paul is especially, I think, preparing them for what is to come. 
right? He's giving this to them so that the, the Roman Christians can walk into persecution and be a light of Christ in that time. And in our lives, we can know it's going to happen again. People have been wrong to us. It's going to happen again. I don't know if it's this afternoon. I don't know if it's Tuesday. I don't know if it's next month, but it happens to us, right? So we're going to break it down to the basics. The first thing that Paul says in this text is that when someone wrongs you, he basically says, never react from the flesh. That's our first point. Never react from the flesh. If you want to be overcome by evil, just live according to the flesh. Just don't think about what to do. What is our fleshly reaction to when somebody sins against us? What is it? When somebody sins against you really bad, what's your fleshly reaction? It's to hit back, right? It's to get back at them. Verse 19, however, Paul says, never take your own revenge. Never take your own revenge. He takes personal retaliation and moves it right off the table. He says, that is not an option for us as Christians. I know that's hard to hear, but he says, you cannot seek as a Christian to punish another person. You cannot seek ways to harm them. Paul says, do not go down that road. And it's tough, right? It's so hard. Because one of the most disorienting things in the world, like even if you're like, yeah, you know, I feel good. Like I feel like I love that person or something like that. Or I feel like I'm walking by the spirit. And then when someone sins against you, it's one of the most disorienting things in the world. It's like getting punched. Everything in you cries for justice in that moment. And you want it to stop. You want it to stop really quick, especially if your idol in that moment is personal comfort, right? You want to defend that. You just want to put an end to whatever's happening. And we are all tempted to react by getting back, aren't we? It's as natural as what happens when the doctor pulls out the little rubber hammer and hits your knee, right? What happens? Your knee jerks, right? You don't have to think about it. Your flesh just takes over. Someone hits you and you hit back. It's simple. It's the knee-jerk reaction of our hearts. And the reason that this is being overcome by evil is because if you just think about that doctor's office illustration, what's in control there? It's the hammer, right? It's the other person, really. It's the hammer. It's the outside influence. That's what's determining how you act. And when someone wrongs you, to be overcome by evil, to just react in the flesh, it's the same thing. Their sin is in control of how you respond. When you're reacting to something, you are out of control of the situation. You are not evidencing the, the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, right? However, when you respond to something, different from reacting to something, when you respond to something, you are in control of that response, right? You're responding intentionally, proactively. You're not being guided around by what that person does. You're running the same play. That's the fruit of self-control. And now you might hear this and be saying to yourself, like, I, I don't really have a vengeful heart. You know, we're talking about hitting and fights and, and all that. Like, I, I would never do violence to somebody, right? I'm, I'm a Christian, and I don't particularly think that our culture is one that's violent. And I would say, praise God, right? But if any man thinks he stands, what does Scripture say? Take heed lest he fall. Because this can show up in ways you don't expect. You know, you might, you might be someone who says, I would never hurt that person, but if that person were made to look like an idiot in public, I might find joy in that, right? It's in your heart. It's subtle. 
Maybe it's something nonverbal. Maybe it's when you're around someone who's, you know, being wrong to you, and, or you think about that person, you, you find yourself tense, right? It's just in you. It's not even in words yet. It's just feelings. More commonly, it usually just comes out in words, right? You can kind of sharpen your words like knives, and you can devise these cutting comebacks that you can say. This is like passive, you know, being passive-aggressive with somebody, right? It's still aggression. You're trying to put someone in their place. You're hitting back, but it's just with words, right? That is what our hearts can do. But I would say probably most commonly, uh, maybe in your heart you just daydream about what you could do or what you could say or maybe how a situation could go differently or maybe something you could do to make that person feel bad or something you could do to make that person look bad. What if I could just say this? Man, if I had just said this this way, oh, that would have been so satisfying in that moment just to hit back like that. See, it's a temptation for all of us. It really is, and it comes out in all sorts of ways. And, and honestly, even if you've decided to let something go, if, even if you've decided to forgive something, you're not out of the woods yet, in a sense. You're still in this world. You still have a fallen body, and Satan can even tempt us to pick it back up, Right? Even things you have forgiven, Satan can recycle those old temptations. He can play them into your mind. He can bring them back up. And he can tempt us with those things. He can move us to bitterness, and our minds can slip into bitterness again. But there are many ways to nurture a vengeful heart. So I think it's just important to know we should be careful, especially when we look at something where a text is talking about you know, violence and vengeance, big words like that. And by the way, our culture is not doing us any favors in this, is it? I mean, have you ever noticed how many movies, just for example, glorify vengeance, right? And the way they do it is they put it on the, on the good guy, on the good character. The good character, the person you're rooting for, is the person who has to go and seek vengeance against somebody. You know, there's the new trailer for the, or the new movie, actually, for the, the Batman movie, right? And in that trailer... Someone asks Batman, you know, who are you? It's a criminal who's asking this. And Batman comes up and he just beats the criminal to a pulp with his fist. And he answers them what? He says, I'm vengeance, right? And there's something in us that's like, yeah, they deserve that, right? Like the criminal, right? That's wrong. There's something in us that likes that. It's easy to get desensitized to it when it's the good guy. Or perhaps you've seen the videos that, you know, make the news from time to time where, you know, in our real world, uh, maybe a, a criminal abused a child or something like that, and it's in the courtroom, and dad's in the courtroom, the dad of the child, and the dad just pushes all the legal matters aside, and he lunges across the courtroom to try to have his way with the criminal, right? And the bailiffs have to stop him, and yet there's something in our hearts that we can look at that, and we're like, I kind of wish that they would just have, you know, 30 seconds with the guy, or something like that. Like, that guy's, a, that guy's a criminal. I don't like this. There can be something in you that says, that's right. So our culture tells us to get even. Our flesh is telling us to get even. And yet Paul, in this text, is saying, never get even. Now, I understand that can be super frustrating. The moment you hear that. <laughs> so you ask, Why? What could motivate you? What could, what could actually make you happy about backing away, about not hitting back? 
Something else has to control your response, and it can't be their sin, and it can't be your flesh. It has to be something else, and this is point two. You have to always respond in faith. Always respond in faith. The opposite of never reacting in the flesh is to always respond in faith, to always live by faith. Paul shows you a better way. When someone's wronged you, we don't overcome evil by being wise in our own eyes, by taking justice into our own hands, by acting like vigilantes, or by neglecting God's word. 1 John 5.4 says this, This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Right? Real victory comes by faith. You remember even Peter, when Jesus was getting arrested, he pulled out his sword and he took a swing at the guard. But even there, he didn't even get him, right? Real victory is not done by our hands. When you're living by faith, however, you'll do two things. First, you will leave it, you'll leave the punishment to God, verse 19. The text says, never avenge yourselves, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When someone sins against you or frustrates you, what's your move? What's your move? There's two parts in this whole text. The first is to leave all the punishment business to God. Leave all the punishment business to God. That's his right. You are absolutely free, by the way, to notice evil. We're not trying to say that evil isn't real. We're not trying to say that whatever is done to you is not wrong. You're free to notice evil, but as Christians, we are not free to punish it. Hopefully, it'll help to hear, as one man said, that when Paul says never to avenge yourself, you know, and you see people get what they deserve, and you're like, ah, there's something that feels right about that, and that person's a criminal, and so what's wrong about this? Well, Paul doesn't say vengeance is wrong. As one man said, it's not that vengeance is wrong, it's that vengeance is God's. Not because vengeance isn't right, but because vengeance isn't yours. That's where we go wrong. It's actually not our job. It's not our jurisdiction. We don't have the authority from God to do that. So in order to take vengeance, quote unquote, what do you have to do? You essentially have to take it from who? From God. You have to take what's his. But when you have clear thoughts faithful thoughts about God's goodness, you can gladly leave that in his hands. You can gladly give it to him. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32. It's early on in the Bible, and it, it clarifies how God basically says, no one ever gets away with anything ever. It's very refreshing when wrong is done. Nobody ever gets away with anything ever. It says, all his ways are just and perfect, and he will avenge his people. Any wrong ever done, especially against his people, this text is talking about when enemies come at his people, he assures them he will make it right. Here he says, all judgment is in my hands, right? Vengeance is mine, and it will happen when I say so. He says, I will repay. But I want you to see, just as we get into this also, that this vengeance is not necessarily all like future vengeance, though it is that primarily, I think. This might address a question you've had. What about the government? Like, can we report criminals? Like, what about the justice system? Like, how does this all work? 
Can we call the police? So someone breaks into your house, can you just bake them cookies? Is that all you can do? Ask them if they need help lifting anything? I just want to say that this passage in Romans 12 is very, very close to Romans 13, where Paul talks about that. Paul talks about the government, and I'll let John cover some of that. But I do just want to say here, Romans 13 verse 4 tells us that the civil authorities, the governing authorities that God has put here, bear the sword as God's ordained avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. It's the same language, and it's channeled through the government. God does have systems and ways of punishing evil today. And the government, in our case, as we can see, may even deputize citizens, right? We have the police, but even citizens can be deputized to act. However, that action is the authority of the government. It is not your own authority as a Christian, Romans 12 is talking about you personally as a Christian. So yes, you can, you can call 911, you can you know, live in the system, you can obey these laws, but as a Christian, it's just important to know it's not our job to punish the people who do wrong to us. It's not our job. And of course, while the government is there, uh, I think we could all agree that it is much more comforting to trust God than to lean on our government, right? Our legal system has holes and weaknesses that can frustrate us to no end. Uh, I was just talking to someone who got off jury duty, uh, and they said, you know, maybe, maybe that person actually did it, but we just didn't have the evidence, right? Maybe that person actually did abuse a child or commit that crime, but we just don't have the evidence, right? That's very frustrating. I would hope it is. And that's just to find one person guilty of one crime. Our human institutions have holes in them and weaknesses. Imagine trying to find out all the sins of one's whole life. It's no wonder that dads lunge across the courtroom floor, right? There's a lot of things that are upsetting about how justice is carried out in our culture. And being honest... Similar to the government, we also have our own weaknesses. We can see it, right? When, I mean, imagine like how, how well do you judge others who wrong you when it's your spouse or your friends or your kids? Would you say that you are a perfect judge? Have you ever overreacted? <laughs> have you ever underreacted? Uh, have you ever misunderstood something? I can't tell you how many times when my daughter does something and I'm like, oh, I didn't even see what happened. I've totally missed it. I actually can't really arbitrate much in this situation because I don't know what happened, (laughs) right? Our memories get fuzzy. We forget things. And just to be honest about that and be aware of that, then when you hear Paul says, step aside, leave room for the wrath of God, right? That's actually a really good thing if we care about justice. James says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, right? The anger of God achieves the righteousness of God. So Paul says, leave it to him. He is in a totally different class. Our justice system is made of imperfect people. We are imperfect people. But God is not like us, is he? God is not like us. God doesn't have our problems. 
God doesn't have our weaknesses and our limitations. God has all the evidence on everybody all the time. Every criminal, every Nazi, every employee, every boss, every son, every daughter, every wrong of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of all time, he has all of that on file. And God remembers every, every single wrong that's ever been done to you. You know, this is addressing Christians who have been wronged. In the words of Hebrews 4, all things are open and laid bare before his eyes. In the words of Exodus 34, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the words of Deuteronomy 32, there is no one who can deliver from his hand. In the words of Numbers 32, every man's sin will find him out. And so, leave the punishment to God. Leave the punishment to God because he will do a fine job of everything. All his ways are perfect and flawless. When God establishes justice in the earth, when God comes to be glorified and to right every wrong, we will not be able to sing songs worthy of that glory in all eternity. We will spend our time singing about what he has done to establish what is right. And so when you're in a conflict, just know, God sees absolutely everything that's being done to you. God knows it all down to the motives of the other person's heart. There's nothing done to you that God thinks is too small, that God doesn't care about. No sin is ever overlooked, and God will judge it all. And so just taking inventory, whatever happened to you when you were younger, there's your sibling, parents, another person, whatever happened to you at school, whatever happened to you at work, Whatever happened to you at church even, whatever happened to you in your home, whatever happened to you in your marriage, are you carrying those things around with you? Are you carrying those things around with you? Because, you know, it's like Jesus finds us with these burdens on our backs. We're like little children with huge burdens on our backs. And Jesus comes in and he stoops down and he says, no, no, that's mine. To bear. That's mine. I will take care of that. That's his. God has relieved you of the burden of having to carry around all the wrongs and having to strategize all the comebacks and having to try to handle justice and all of that. He's relieved us of that. God knows. And so rest in that. You can forgive them. You can let go of these things. You can leave it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. Leave it in his hands. It's not a matter of if. He will repay. He will judge perfectly, and you can just trust him. And if someone's really causing you pain, though, if you've ever been in that moment, that season of life where someone's really upsetting you, you might be saying, but why not now? Like, why doesn't this just happen now? 2 Peter 3 answers that question. You know what it says? It says, God is not slow. He's not sleeping. He's not lazy. He's not late. What does it say? 2 Peter 3. It says that he is patient. He is patient towards you. He is patient 
towards all his people, for all his elect to come to repentance. He is here showing mercy in our day to his people. That patience that God has is the very reason you and I are here. Ever wonder why God didn't just punish sin right at Adam and Eve? First sin, just get rid of it. Why did he wait? Why did he do all of this? Why did he withhold his justice? Romans 9 says, to make known the riches of his mercy on us. So next time you find yourself thinking, like, just God, just judge evil today. I just want it now. If you find yourself impatient, remember that God was not so impatient with you. God was not so impatient with you. Can't you look back on your life and see all the sins that you've done? And you can just thank the Lord that he didn't come in earlier, even before you were saved, and just take you out? Can't you just enjoy that? Just breathe the air of his mercies? Paul can even look back over his life, and he can do exactly that. In 1 Timothy 1, he looks over his life, he says, you know, I was a persecutor. I was the one who was evil. For years, I was a blasphemer of my God. That was me. I was the evil person. And God was merciful to me. And he says, now I, what God has done in my life is an example of his perfect patience for all who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. Jesus is very patient so that people would come to repentance. Did you catch that at the end of the verse? It says, for anyone who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. God has more people out there in the world to save, like Paul, like us. There are more people. That's why we're here, actually. You guys may have heard the illustration of how God is holding the world right now. With one hand, he's holding his wrath back, and with another hand, he's reaching out and inviting you to accept his offer of the gospel. And one day, God will drop both hands. But today, the patience of God is withholding his judgment and reaching out to us, sinners like us, and calling us to repentance, is calling us to accept the free gift of God's grace. The patience of God is good news for everybody today. And if you're not a Christian, come to God through Jesus Christ, who lived for your righteousness, who died for your sins, who rose from the dead to give you the hope of eternal life with him. You can know that your sins were punished in Christ. As someone said, every sin is punished either in you or in the cross or in Christ. But every sin is punished. God does not just take our sins for Christians and just put them in a filing cabinet and ship it off to a warehouse and forget about it. God does punish every single sin that ever happens. God is just but he is also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God rightly poured out his wrath upon a willing substitute in Jesus Christ so that he could take all the wrath reserved for us and that to us all we know is grace. That his grace can be poured out upon us, that God is not angry with us anymore, that our sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ, that all that wrath is extinguished upon Christ, never to be rekindled again towards us. 
We can have confidence that we are in the good graces of God every single day when we look at the fact that wrath was poured out in Jesus Christ. Christ who, while he was in heaven and sinless, said, I will go down. I will stoop to become a man and live for their righteousness, live the life they were commanded to live but could not. And I will die the death that they were supposed to die. I have no need to do that. But by his free grace, he comes and dies under the almighty wrath of God. And yet God was pleased to crush him in order to extend mercy and grace to you, to us. And we live here today breathing the air of God's mercy, right? This is God's will for us in the world. He's withholding his wrath even today and giving us grace. Because God's finished work on the cross, you can know when you trust in Christ and what he did for your acceptance with God and his life entirely, you can know that your sins have been punished, that you can be forgiven because he loves you. And if you are a Christian and you know that your sins have been paid for, you know that Every sin will be punished, even the sins of unbelievers who will never be saved. All of those will be punished. God, will, God cares about all of those. God will be shown to be just. And yet, because he has been so loving to us, because he's been so gracious to us, we get to do what the next part of our text says to do. And this is the next point. To love our enemies as ourself. To love your enemy as yourself. You can look at your enemies and you can pity them because they're hopeless without God. Your life is secure and yet they have not God. They don't have the grace. They don't know the God that you know. You can pity them. You want them to have what you have. When you are really experiencing the grace of Christ, when you really know how much he loves you and someone does wrong to you, you're like, man, I wish you knew what I knew. And I actually want to work for you, to serve you so that you can know the goodness of God that's better than even the, the promise that it's good to get back at somebody. See, that's the, that's the power of the temptation is that it's good, right? That it's better for us to get back at people. That's what unbelief operates in, and yet it's a false promise. It's a lie. We know that the goodness is more, more rightly reserved for just trusting God to do what he should do and then doing what he tells us to do. Paul says, never avenge yourself, beloved, but, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If your enemy is hungry, this is really interesting, the Old Testament in Leviticus 19 says, you shall not take vengeance, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. But he says, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And Paul's picking up on that logic now. And he's saying, never take vengeance, but love your enemy. And you would say, as yourself. You start thinking, when you do this, when you do this, you start thinking less about that person as an opponent to you. And you start looking at them from a detached perspective 
and saying, what does that person need? Not what are they going to do to me, but you start thinking about them. Your eyes are off of yourself and you're thinking about what does that person need right now? What are their needs? How can I serve this person? You know you're secure. You know that God cares for you. God loves you. God will protect you. You'll never be taken out of God's hand. You can know that, hey, you can just spend and be spent. You can die and you go to heaven. It doesn't matter. What you can look at is you can look at other people who don't know Christ and you can say, what does that person need? And, and just to get you started on that, I just want to give you a very simple question. It's just when someone's mean to you or something like that, you can just say, what would I need if I were in that person's shoes? Like, what would I need? You know, this text talks about if your enemy's hungry, would I need, a, would I need water? If the enemy's thirsty, or yeah, if the enemy's thirsty, would I need water? If they're hungry, would I, would I need food? But also, what truth would I need to hear? You know, this can apply to anything. This can apply to marriage. This can apply to relationships with Christians, anything. Because when you start asking that question, what would I need if I were them? You start to put yourself in their shoes, and that's how you love your neighbor as you love yourself. You start to think, how would I like to be loved here? How would, how would I want to be loved there? How would I need to hear that I'm wrong? Would I want someone, you know, I think sometimes we can come into conflict and we can just say, like, this is the verse, and that's, that's what you need to hear. And it's like, that's true. That is what they need to hear. Uh, that is what we need to hear. But to think about how that's going to be received, to think about how God brings truth like that to us. It's a whole different mindset. What would I need if that were me? What if I had their pressures? What if I had their upbringing? What if I had their, their family life? What if that was done to me when I was younger? What if, what if this many people around me were, were, un- were not Christians? You start to really start to sympathize with them while not disregarding justice. You just start to think about how can I serve them? The punishment for all those sins is up to God. How can I love that person? That's our lane. You have a genuine desire to serve their needs. And in doing that, that is, that's how you get verse 21. That's how you overcome their evil with good. You see, you don't, become over, you, you don't overcome evil by becoming like them. Uh, by if they sling mud, you sling mud back. After a while, you can't tell the difference of, of who started it because everybody's in the mud, right? But when you actually respond with love and care to actually give God to them, to give God's grace to them, to give good news to them, to even warn them about what they're doing against God, all of these things, that's how you love them. That's how good overcomes evil. Your love for other people is part of the good that overcomes evil in the world. So what's all this business about burning coals? <laughs> Putting burning coals on their heads, right? Verse 20, sounds painful, right? And it would be, but it's a metaphor in this case. Uh, it's not saying to actually hurt them, obviously. Uh, there's a lot of debate there's a lot of debate about what this is. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about what this is, but I'll tell you how I see it. In the Old Testament, the image of coals being cast upon someone head, someone's head is used in context of judgment. 
Like in Psalm 140, God brings coals down upon the heads of the enemies. God comes and makes it clear that they are wrong, right? They may have been living, having a heyday as an evil person, but God in judgment shows them you are wrong. There's also an ancient Egyptian custom where it's not God doing it, but it's yourself. If if someone sinned and they come to realize that they were wrong, they would put a pan on their head and put burning coals in the pan. And it was a testimony. They would walk around testifying that they know what they have done is wrong. That's someone realizing what they've done is wrong. And there's another ancient source that says that feeding your enemies is a way to humble them, which is like the first part of this verse. Again, showing them that they're wrong, that that they actually need what you have. And so I think the main thrust of this idea is when you respond in kindness, you're actually showing them that they're wrong. It sends a very clear message. You know, if you respond with evil, then it's just a matter of who's stronger. It's not a question of who's right. But if you respond with kindness, it really highlights how what they're doing is completely wrong. Now, this passage here is a quote from Proverbs, and it says that when you meet hatred with kindness, it actually says God rewards you for this. It says you get a reward for doing this. So we know it's not sinful, right? This is not um, a way of you know, seeking personal vengeance. This is not some like Christian form of vengeance. Uh, that's not what this text is saying. Uh, Paul and Proverbs both deny uh, and forbid personal vengeance. This is not a license to give someone one of those good old-fashioned backhanded blessings. Uh, This is not uh, a heart that wants to hurt anybody. This is not, as someone said, polite revenge. Uh, This is not camouflaged hatred. It's not Christianized passive aggression. This is not serving someone in order to hurt them. It's serving someone to wake them up to the fact that they are wrong, that they're on the wrong side. The context tells you that you're showing them they're on the wrong side. You do this in the effort to change them. And we're back to verse 21, where we started. Your aim is to conquer their cruelty. Your aim is to conquer their cruelty. And the way you do that is with kindness. When somebody sins against you, And their sin doesn't lead to your sin. When their sin isn't in control, when they sin against you and you turn to bless them and serve them, what what are you saying in that moment? You're saying, your evil will not win. Right? You know, Jesus purified for himself a people who are zealous for good works. We love living in the good works of God, right? That's what he made us to thrive in. And when someone comes and tempts us to evil, we respond with good. And we overcome that evil with good. When you refuse to give in to evil, when you refuse to sling mud when they do, it shows this beautiful reality that, as Ephesians 6 would say, God has put inside of you an incorruptible love. A love that cannot be overcome. A light that cannot be diminished by darkness. Something that cannot be overwhelmed. The love of God will prevail. And so you can enter into a conflict and you can have the mindset to say, good, good will prevail right here, right now. Like this, good can do that. And when it comes to the expectations, another layer into this, 
the expectations of what's actually going to happen to that person, right? Are they actually going to repent or are they not? I think Peter gives expectation that it will change someone, though maybe not everyone or at least right away. In 1 Peter, he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what's good? Right? He's basically saying, like, there's, everyone speaks the language of kindness. Like, they know it's wrong to fight people who are kind. Uh, your enemy will know that you're right. Peter says, who is there to harm you for doing this? And then the next verse, he says, but even if, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, let's say they don't repent, right? That's the other side of it. He says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, right? God will still make them aware that they are wrong. They will figure it out. And so I think this burning coals idea is not a license for Christian passive aggression, but it's to show people they're wrong in an effort to conquer their cruelty. You're trying to get them to work with you in a sense, using the ally of their conscience to be able to show them they're wrong, to convict them of wrong, and perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, we might be doubting that this could actually work, right? Again, with all we see in the news, with everything evil that there is out there, um, we might doubt that kindness is really all that powerful, but we're back to where we started. Do you believe that the goodness of God can conquer evil? I think it's very interesting that this quote from Proverbs 25, just a few verses earlier, it says that patience persuades, which is what we talked about. And it says gentleness, a soft tongue, does what? Breaks bones. That's God's economy of how things work. Do you believe that God's kindness is powerful enough to crush evil? Now, just as a story about this, a very limited example of this, I heard a story about some neighborhood boys who destroyed another family's fort, basically, something they built. Some younger girls had built it, and the girl's mother told them to bake a tray of cookies for the boys. They said, this is what Christians do. This is what Christians do. When people do wrong against us, we bless them. So a very tangible example the mom had the, the girls bake a tray of cookies, bring it to the boys, made it deliver them, because that's what Christians do. And they did that. Feels awkward, right? You go, you give cookies, you meet mom at the door, and you say, hey, your son's destroyed our fort, and here, this is what God tells us to do. We actually want to bless them. So they go and deliver the cookies, and when they get home, uh, there was a call, and the call revealed from that family that, that act of kindness had brought those boys to tears like that. That kindness did convict. That kindness was powerful. Kindness did teach them that they were wrong. And so, just as a reminder, kindness can conquer me. And as we close, let's just remember that we are all testimonies of that. That is how God has drawn us to repentance was through his kindness in Romans 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are good to us. Lord, we know that you are just. You are more just than we could ever hope to be. Lord, you are in a class of your own. 
Lord, there is real evil in our world. And Lord, we are a part of that. We are a part of the evil, and yet you have been very patient with us. Lord, you have shown and showered your mercy upon us. Lord, it is your kindness that has led us to repentance. It was your kindness that led Paul to repentance. And it will be your kindness that leads any sinner to repentance, Lord. Lord, we know that your gospel is good news, that Christ is the sovereign Lord, that he will judge, that he will avenge every wrong. And yet, Lord, help us to see that we stand on a platform of your mercy. Lord, that we stand here in this world today, breathing the fresh air of forgiveness. And Lord, help us to seek that for other people. Lord, help us to overcome evil with good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.